Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 19th of April, 2023. The topic is Impacts of the Voice to Parliament on First Nations Peoples. On the panel, we have Dr. Clinton Schultz, Camilla Roy Mann, and Director of First Nations Strategy and Partnerships at Black Dog Institute. Dr. Shannon Springer, Associate Professor at the First Peoples Health Stream in the School of Medicine at Griffith University. And Michelle, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session, we have Dr. Sarah Barker. Welcome to the Impacts of the Voice to Parliament on First Nations People, our Expert Insights webinar today. So I'd like to begin with acknowledgement of country. So the Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. I'm in Nam or Melbourne and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people and the traditional custodians of country here. And to extend that respect to the traditional custodians of all the lands where people are zooming in from today, as well as pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us today. And we hope their wisdom can be with us here today in our, in our discussion. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across Australia. So to begin with, I'd like, I'm Sarah Barker, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'll be the moderator today. I would like to introduce our panellists. So uh, Clinton, may I introduce you first? Um, Hi, everybody. My name's uh, Clinton. I'm a Gamilaroi Gomeroy man. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the people whose place that I uh, reside on and call home being Kumbamari people. Um, most people know as the Gold Coast and, and thank Elders past, present and future. Uh, I'm a, currently the Director of First Nations Strategy and Partnerships here with the Black Dog Institute and the Head of First Nations Research, a psychologist by profession. Um, have an extensive background in social emotional well-being research, higher education, um, and obviously social emotional well-being practice. Thank you. Thank you, Clinton. Thanks for joining us today. Shannon, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Shannon Springer. Um, I'm originally from Mackay in North Queensland. Um, and thank you, everyone, for uh, joining the podcast. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on where I'm calling in from today on the Mary country. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm a GP by background, uh, currently work at Charleville at the Aboriginal Medical Service. Um, I've mainly worked in Aboriginal Medical Services for most of my um, career, um, among a couple of other things. But, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks for being with us today. And Michelle, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Michelle Gassara. I'm a proud Kadu Dimon and Kadu Yaknanan woman. So that's in a little town called Alwadia in the top end of Northern Territory. But I grew up in Adelaide, Tandenya, and now I live in Nam, Melbourne. Uh, I actually live on stunning Boonwurrung country right near all the coastal beaches. And I'm working here today in Wurundjeri country at RMIT University. So I'm at RMIT 
Vice Chancellor's Indigenous Predoctoral Research Fellow, and I look at um, lived experiences of image-based sexual abuse within First Nations communities. And I'm also part of the National Network of Lived Experience for Black Dog Institute, and that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lived experiences of ill mental health and suicide. Great. Thanks, Michelle. What a fantastic panel we've got with us today. Thank you all. So um, I'd just like to clarify that the focus of the panel discussion today won't be uh, panellists' views on the voice to parliament, but rather the effects of um, the discussions and media about it on social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So to begin with, um, discussions and media about the voice to parliament are a regular occurrence in the lead up to the referendum and these can affect the social and emotional well-being of first peoples what does social and emotional well-being mean to each of you and what does it look like michelle can i ask you to start please i think um to me social and emotional being is really looking at you know the experiences that i have uh, when I'm relating to, you know, my country, the connections to land, um, to my body, spirituality, my ancestors, um, how I relate to my community, family and kinship structures, and really about the mind and emotions and kind of how they all interplay with what's happened like throughout society, politically, socially, um, culturally and historically in Australia, and how there is a lens like always over us of colonialism and um, patriarchy too, might I add, and that, you know, it's how my experiences are uh, kind of funneled through that. Thanks, Michelle. Clinton, what about you? Yeah, thanks very much, Sarah. Uh, so social emotional wellbeing is a holistic perspective of um, health and wellbeing. Um, so quite often, unfortunately, it gets interchangeably used as, I guess, a more fad or more politically correct term for mental health, but it's much broader than that. Mental health is just one domain or one dimension of social emotional wellbeing. And as Michelle alluded to, you know, it's about acknowledging all the connections that are important to our complete self and understanding ourselves as connected to, to other and across time. Um, so things like connection to place, connection to to culture, con um, connection to spirituality, connection to law, to our physical self, to our mental self. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, it's it, mental health is an important part of social emotional well-being, uh, but the understanding of the concept itself is much broader. Great. Thanks, Clinton. And Shannon? Yeah, I guess just from my experience, um, uh, the context of of living and practicing in a social emotional well-being point of view is just who I am um, and what I do and how I live um, and you know all the definitions of what social emotional well-being is um, yeah it, it has been difficult for me to to talk to students and to other people about it's just because it's a lived experience of who we are what we do and how we relate to our realities and um, and that, and that's the way I practice medicine. And if practicing medicine outside of that context just doesn't make sense. Um, and actually practicing medicine from that point of view actually is good for everyone. So, yeah, great, great. Thank you, Shannon. Um, and I guess why is it important then for health practitioners to work with First Nations people from a social and emotional wellbeing lens rather than one of health and mental health um, when looking to support? Well-being of First Peoples. 
Yeah, well, we know that uh, mental health, uh, or if you look at it from the physical health side, are both Western constructs and concepts, particularly the way that they're practiced in Western countries, such as Australia. Um, physical health is very much driven by a biomedical model and, and mental health is driven very much by a biopsychosocial model. So that's slightly more broader, but it's still very individualistic in its lens point. Um, we're collective-based peoples. And as I said, connection is what is you know of utmost importance to us. So so trying to, I guess, position us as a part from those collectives uh, doesn't actually bring around anything of benefit for us as individuals. So it's important for people to recognise, I guess, that more collective basis of a social emotional well-being model because it forces people to more look at what are some of the drivers of social and emotional well-being disturbance. So a lot of the things that we face as practitioners when people present are people presenting with diagnoses that they've been given from a biomedical or a biopsychosocial model that are actually symptoms of a much broader issue, and that's disturbances of social and emotional well-being. So if we don't bother to look beyond the condition or the diagnosis, then we're really not forcing ourselves to look at what the drivers of the situation and the disturbances are, which means we don't really go about rectifying those situations. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So what are some of the historical, social, political, environmental and intergenerational concerns that media and discussions about the voice to parliament can bring up for first peoples in terms of social and emotional well-being at the moment? I, I guess um, just from my experience on the ground, <clears throat> and we've seen over many generations, including my parents and grandparents and what have you, is that we've seen many successive policies and many successive govern governments come and go over time, um, and we've seen many failed things that have come and gone over time. What's transpired on the ground um, has had some negative effects. In saying that, there's been a lot of positive programs that have been out there as well, which have been funded and defunded over time. And I guess with the context of The Voice and what I'm seeing on the ground, um, particularly with people that I talk to, um, it's trying to connect how this this discussion of, of enshrining a voice in the constitution will actually affect and impact people on the ground. Um, and I guess even though the consultation period is, you know, has gone on for the last five years since the Uluru Statement, um, I think it's been, uh, uh, particularly the media hasn't really picked up on and sort of translated to uh, a lot of the communities what that actually means in the long term um, and, and, what, and what that could actually mean um, for empowerment um, and self-determination. Um, so, you know, we've got we've got people in our community that you know take the view that um you know if we go down this road of constitutional um uh, recognition and having a voice um you know are we are we taking the position or or reinforcing a system that actually marginalizes their own people um and then there's other people that have been working in leadership positions for a very long time that are trying to get traction in governments and successive governments you know when we have a change of government um how do we you know because it's always taking people on the journey all the time for aboriginal and torres strait islander people um so in terms of 
the, I mean, the, so the, the, in terms of the overall political determinants, so this is really starting to ramp up and affecting communities. And there's a lot of discussion happening out there right now. Um, so, yeah, it it it, it is. Um, yeah, if, if I could just forward uh, further on what Shannon was saying there, you know, we've had a history in this country of failed political discourse when it comes to our well-being as First Nations peoples. So even if we look at quite recent uh, events such as the apology, you know, the apology was this miraculous moment that should have brought around formative change for us as First Nations peoples. And it was a great it was a great moment of healing for many, many people of stolen generation in their families. But what it's become over time is a bit of a double-edged sword because in most jurisdictions, if not all in this country, we've actually got higher levels of First Nations children being removed today than we ever did before the apology, including during stolen generations. So when we have these events and these discourses that take place and sometimes they become politically motivated, they forget what's at the root of this and that's our well-being. So that can become a trigger for people when they go, here we go again. So we've been through this before. We went through it with native title. We went through it with the apology. And now we're going through similar discourse again, which is now being highlighted through media and is based within politics, which is actually fundamental to our well-being. So it moves it from being historical triggers through to what Shannon was just talking about, being a political determinant of social and emotional well-being. Yeah, I can add to what. Clinton was saying as well is just that you know as as First Nations people we're wary and we're tired of all these recommendations that have been like told to the government you know for instance the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody um, stuff to do with child protection and it's just about you know we've given examples of good ideas that can be implemented but the fact that they're not or they're only partially over this time is why people are so kind of wary about this voice and if it's not kind of spelling out exactly what the voice means, because I have family that live up in Water, like I mentioned before, around that area, Daly River, Peppermanati, that don't even know about the voice. So how is putting them on the ground floor if, if not everybody that is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander has an understanding of the voice or even knows about it, depending where they live? Yeah, 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 so access to information's an issue. Yeah, thanks, Michelle, yeah. So... Clinton, as a researcher, tell us about some of the effects you've noticed on the social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples from media, including social media, um, and discussions about the voice to parliament. Yeah, for sure. So from a research perspective, this is a very new space. So this is a new discourse. So there isn't research about what this particular discourse is currently causing. But what we do have is a whole bunch of episodes happening at a grassroots level within communities where we can see the distress and the despair um, that is going on for First Nations peoples. What we can leave lose, what we can learn from previous research, particularly say if we take into account, um, you know, just a few years ago when we had the marriage equality plebiscite and debates going on, we actually seen that there was a, a massive spike in social emotional well-being disturbances for members of the LGBTQI plus communities during that space. What we haven't seen is any recommendations come around about how do we undertake very delicate and triggering conversations such as the voice now and, and the marriage plebiscite discussions back then in a way that is more respectful and responsive to the social and emotional well-being of those vulnerable groups. So that's something that's of real interest to me and to others at present is 
what can we do through research to better inform how these processes can be undertaken into the future? Fantastic question. Yeah, great thing to be looking at. Thanks, Clinton. Shannon, what are some of the issues and challenges you've noticed at this time in First Peoples communities that you work with as a GP? I think uh, um, a lot of the conversations that I've been having, you know, with our Aboriginal health workers and, and mob at home is is trying to get their head around exactly what I was talking about is what, what this means for them. And we've got a whole bunch of non-Indigenous people approaching um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people saying, well, you know, what is this about and what is this for and, and what is this going to do for you? And, um, you know, a lot of mob feel shame when they actually don't know. Um, and they and they don't know a lot about you know um, how constitutional um, uh, you know how the constitution of Australia actually works and um, and, and and what it's going to mean for them in the long run. So I think there's a lot of shame, and that's actually stifled a lot of conversation about it, um, particularly publicly. Um, so there are a lot of discussions in small groups and families and those sorts of spaces where people actually feel safe to to yarn about that. Um, but in terms of um, you know non-indigenous people approaching um, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, I just it's been really shut down. It's actually been quite silent, where a lot of people have had no voice. Okay, thank you, Michelle. What has your experience been like over this time in the lead up to the vote on the Voice to Parliament referendum? I think I can agree with Shannon there, where I've had you know non-indigenous and indigenous people coming up to me and asking what my opinion is on the voice and, you know, um, like, to be honest, I'm actually on the fence about it, but it's just, you know, especially for non-Indigenous people coming up and asking for your opinion. Um, it's always like if you're the Aboriginal person in the room, people always coming to you and asking things about Aboriginality or not realising that anybody can do an acknowledgement of country and it doesn't have to be the Indigenous person in the room. And I think if you're, like, a good ally, you need to be doing your own research about, you know, what this means. For, for us as First Nations people before even coming and asking any questions. But also, if you do come and ask any questions, you know, be prepared that we might not want to talk about it, that it's something that we're holding close to our hearts or only want to speak about, you know, with our mob um, by ourselves. But I think the most sad thing that I've seen, especially on social media, is this kind of resurgence about questioning people's indigeneity leading up to the list and using lots of terminology that talks about people's, you know, indigeneity and percentages. And I don't think I really need to go into those really vulgar terms um, because I've had that kind of stuff directed to me before being a light-skinned Indigenous person. But, yeah, it's really kind of bringing out a lot of racist people, to be honest. And we know that there is quite a lot of racist people in Australia because of the way that Australia's kind of been built, you know, colonial patriarchal type of system. And I'm just really, like, disheartened to see a lot of the kind of rhetoric and discourse that people are talking about on social media and that's across all, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, everything. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just, it's really disheartening, but it's only April and if they're planning to do this at the end of the year, that's like a whole year that we as nations people are going to have to basically put up with this. And if you think about the news media, they tend to use the voice to kind of talk about a lot of negative issues that might be happening um, you know, for instance, Alice Springs um, and the Northern Territory when they're talking about violence and they're talking about, you know, sexual abuse for uh, children in First Nations communities. And it's really, like, disgusting, to be honest, and to kind of push these stereotypes and use, you know, what we're going through as political footballs is, like, I hate it, it's disgusting. And 
yeah, I think especially right now, you know, Peter Dutton, Jacinta Price talking about, you know, how people are experiencing sexual abuse in Indigenous communities is really triggering for people that have experienced it, you know, being placed into white families or being put with foster families and, you know, being away from their own kin and connection and country and land. And, you know, as a as a victim survivor of child sexual abuse, I don't like that these really important topics are being used basically to sway people's decisions from yes to no. Yeah. Not at all. It's not on. Yeah. 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 Can, I, can I just quickly yeah. point out that yeah. that experience happened in a non-Indigenous place? Yeah. People, so. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Yeah. And, and just picking up on that, you know, we continually see this is where the, the government continually failed to take the Australian people on the journey with them, you know, um, and, and helping people understand, you know, having a bipartisan approach, which could have happened five years ago after the Uluru Statement, and clearly spelt out what the intention was, you know, and take everyone on the journey. Instead, again, now it's it's turned very much political and it's up to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to explain what this means for us, you know. And this is this continual process of the government working on us instead of working with us. Um, and, you know, we see it time and time again. Now, I mean, just to be clear, you know, the opposition um, supports constitutional change. They support the voice. Um but just not the voice that's actually put forward. And that they're talking about local, you know, de- um, representation and detail and what have you, you know. Um, and, and and to be fair, um, you know, my personal views have, have sort of swayed over time since I've educated myself on, on how this whole process actually works. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, this was delivered in mid-2021 um, um, the wording and, and what have you to the to the opposition, which was actually set up by the Morrison government and you know led by uh, Ken Wyatt, they had the opportunity to come forward then and have that discussion. But now at the eleventh hour, you know we uh, you know this wedge has been jammed in the middle, um, both of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, but also non-Indigenous communities, um, to. Yeah, to come up, you know, to come up to speed with all of these discussions, and then, you know, for me, some of the discussion is about representation and the voice, and some of the discussion is actually about institutional racism, you know, and and it's hard to distinguish where people are coming from, you know, are we really having a discussion where you'd want to um, actually get some traction and some advancement, or am I actually? Um, trying to deal with reforming races, you know, it's and, and and it can be difficult to work that discussion out. Thanks, Shannon. So there are differing views on the merits or otherwise of a voice to parliament. What about dividing views that may occur within Indigenous families and communities on the voice to parliament? What have you observed play out when this is the case? Michelle, I might start with you. I think just what I said before about people that might still be on the fence and sometimes that can also trigger like lateral violence. So between Indigenous people where someone might be like a very strong yes vote and if you come across as unsure or no, they might challenge that. But I think there's lots of different layers to think about when it comes to the voice to parliament. And I think it was mentioned before um, that it is 
if you're saying yes to this constitutional recognition, you're becoming part of the colony that's, you know, overseen us at this time, if that's necessarily good or not. And I think, you know, it's it's also the main, like, confusion around it is that a lot of people don't know, like Shannon said, don't know or understand, you know, legalese and that kind of stuff when it comes to understanding what it means legally to have this voice to parliament. And I think even, like, about the questioning of um, the question to um, the voice to parliament about the constitutional recognition and then the voice, even some people like in our community saying that it should be two questions and not necessarily lumped together as one. And I think, yeah, just when it comes to, you know, our families and our communities, it's really like taking that time like we usually do, like, you know, deep listening, active listening, trying to understand where people are coming from with their opinions and kind of saying all people's opinions are valid, obviously, you know, racist ones, (laughs) but I think within um, mob and community, like all our opinions are valid. And it's just trying to see where people are coming from, where they do kind of sit, you know, in that kind of yes or no, even um, some of um, my friends and colleagues saying they might not vote all together and abstain from voting. So Yeah, yeah. thanks, Michelle. Clinton. The issue of lateral violence is what is most damaging at present. You know, lateral violence is in group when in groups start attacking each other because of the oppression that they're feeling. We've been under nonstop oppression for 230 years in this country as First Nations peoples, and every time that one of these political, uh, politically driven or motivated sort of discussions comes up and and we happen to be the topic of that discussion, it furthers that experience of oppression because it's not our voices at the end of the day that are getting to play this out and it's not us getting to make the decisions. So what many people forget is that we're only, we're less than 4% of the population in this country. You know, if this was really about our well-being, it would be left to us as First Nations peoples to determine what we want for our well-being. At the end of the day, this is politically motivated and we feel that and that experience of oppression drives the lateral violence and it, it it's like crabs in a bucket, you know, you put a lid on that thing and start boiling it, the lid's going to blow up and you you end up with crab guts all over your kitchen. There's no there's no stopping that. Once once the heat is applied and the pressure is put on top, eventually you're going to have an explosion. So that's the situation that we're finding ourselves within communities at the moment is that we are at, we're past boiling point. The pressure is already built and the flame isn't getting turned down. If anything the flame is getting turned up on a daily basis. There is more attention on this discussion now than probably anything else since the marriage equality debate. And all that increase of attention, all the extra uh, pressure on Aboriginal peoples to be the experts on everything and anything to do with this, plus then the episodes of racism and discrimination that we're facing, because this is driving further episodes of racism, discrimination amongst non-Indigenous peoples towards us, is all that extra pressure has led to a point where people are just exploding. And some of that's coming out in physical violence. A lot of that is coming out in in, emos- in emotional and psychological distress and negative coping with that. And once again, as First Nations peoples, we will be the ones that are left to blame for the issues that have now been put upon us. So when we start presenting to mental health services, when we start presenting to GPs with increases in chronic disease or increases in, in significant mental health disturbance, it will again, the narrative will be run that it's us as First Nations peoples that 
uh, are more prone to experience these things. There will be no highlight, there will be no spotlight put on the fact that a continual colonial process of negative discourse about us perpetuates the situations that we exist in. That goes back to the drivers you were talking about, yeah. Um, just because Clinton mentioned the marriage plebiscite and I'm a bisexual Aboriginal woman, um, it was really disheartening as well to see when it came to posting, you know, the collateral you get in the mail that's trying, trying to sway your vote. One actually did mention that would make another stolen generation if people were to be brought up in same-sex relationships. And it just makes me really worried and concerned for all our well-being, especially Rainbow Mob, about what's going to be like put in the mail or what kind of pamphlets and things are going to be handed out to kind of sway people's votes. And, you know, how discriminatory is it going to be? It's very concerning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Michelle. Shannon, yeah. And I think um, just just part of the internal discussion and and something that I had to educate myself on, um, you know, is about constitutional law and actually what what that all means. Because, you know, there there was a fear among the community, you know, if if this was to get up and and to say yes, um, that we would cede our sovereignty um, and that, um, you know, is this where it all stops? You know, particularly when we're so far away from where we want to be um, in terms of our own health and well-being. Um, but, you know, uh, I was listening to Professor Megan Dave Davis uh, on a podcast who's an expert in constitutional law. And there, there was and she was able to counteract a lot of those rumours and misconception about, you know, that enshrining this uh, in the Constitution doesn't cede our sovereignty, uh, sovereignty because that, uh, that it's a legislative process. So, um, uh, you know, I would say, you know, particularly for any of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander viewers and non-Indigenous viewers, there is a lot of information out there um, in terms of, you know, what this is about. And, you know, it is our responsibility to to actually have a look um, and, you know, educate ourselves about what this process will actually mean for all of us. So what pressures might community elders be shouldering and what's happening in terms of intergenerational learning around discussions on the voice to parliament. Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to that notion of pressure. So we look up to our elders and many people in communities go to their elders for that advice and for that guidance. Uh, And I think that puts another level of pressure on our elders to to be able to, I guess, be the experts in this space when it's a very complex issue. Um, You know, as Shannon mentioned, you need to have an understanding of everything from constitutional law um, through to parliamentary process and and media legislation around, you know, what is and is not allowed to be discussed um, and the dangers around that. So, I think that's an overwhelming burden to be put onto peoples who are already looked to for guidance on a daily basis, on a continual basis, guidance and and support on a continual basis, when they are probably going to have just as many questions about this as anybody else in the community. So I I think that that is a real risk for the well-being of people who are put in that situation. Huge pressure, yeah. Michelle? I think in terms of, you know, elders, depending on, you know, their age, they would have gone through the 67 referendum and maybe having, you know, similar kind of triggering feelings that might be happening from that. And I know that dependent on where 
elders actually live and I guess what we deem, you know, <laughs> or the colonial way of looking at remote and rural areas that are, you know, kind of dissent, there's different voices. And I think some people might feel like their voice is not being heard as a particular elder or that some other elders are being like put up on a pedestal. And I think it's really, you know, important. Like I said before, there are a lot of communities that don't really know much about the voice or there are a lot of elders that are pushing back and saying, no, like we don't want this, or maybe they're saying treaty before voice. And it's just important that we do listen to all those kind of discussions and really find out the root causes of why people think this way. And, you know, I guess not to put like a pun on it, but it's not like a black and white issue. Like we we are like individuals in a collectivist court. We all have our own individual thoughts and feelings. So yeah, navigate that in that community and um you know if I don't agree like with an older I obviously still do like I obviously still respect what they say and really want to learn from what they can tell me great thanks Michelle Shannon yeah I'm just the same view as the other the other panelists you know um that view you know if if you're not at the table then you're on the menu um so you know this ensures that you are at you know, we are at the table all the time. And, you know, um, that whole debate where, you know, if if we want a voice, we could legislate it, um, that can actually go backward. Um, but if it's actually in the constitution, um, then, you, you know, you're guaranteed a seat at the table. Um, and, and some other elders say, well, we've never lost our voice. You know, we, we've just, people have just lost the capacity to listen and they never have. So um, there, there, there's no there's no right or wrong, and I, I think the challenge here is we don't need to get into binary thinking. You know, people's experience and their lived experience is going to shape their view on this. Every view is going to be different depending on what community you come from, what historical you know challenges that you've experienced, um, and how this is going to translate to your health and well-being. Um, and, and I think this has been the greatest challenge where people haven't been taken on the journey in terms of looking at a long-term plan. Because in the short term, this is going to mean nothing. In the short term, this will mean nothing for people like me on the ground to provide better health care. But in terms of long, long-term uh, health outcomes, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's envisaged that we're able to get some long-term traction and some and some and some momentum on things that have worked before um, and have come from community, but then have been, you know, the pin has been pulled. So, um, yeah, there's. I, I just understand where people are coming from and the challenges around it. Um, but I also want to point out that I do really feel for the people, um, you know, that, that have led this whole process as well and tried really, really hard to take the nation on the journey um, because I think they've showed some great leadership um, and it's been very difficult, um, particularly when, you know, the terms of reference for all this was was very binding, very limited. Um, and you listen to Marcia Langton um, you know, and, and those people that have done really, really uh, a lot of hard work. And, you know, I, I can only imagine their own health and well-being trying to get traction in this space. You know, I think it they would be under tremendous pressure. And um, I do take my hat off to them. And, um, yeah, and I just hopefully we can all move forward um, regardless of what our views are, you know, collectively. Yeah, great, Shannon. Thank you. So what are some of the things that practitioners working with Indigenous clients and patients needed 
need to be tuned into and mindful of in the lead up to the referendum, also following it, um, the voice to parliament referendum? I think first and foremost, practitioners need to be tuned into that this isn't actually about them. <laughs> and so their, their role is to listen and to remain uh, non-judgmental and to not bother throwing their two cents in. We don't need any more. We get enough of that from media already. Um, you know, media functions around these days, clickbait and views. And unfortunately, people are more likely to to click or to view around negativity and drama. That's why everything on TV is based around drama these days, including reality TV. Um, we don't need extra of that when we go into see a practitioner. Um, what we need is somebody to to listen to the stresses that we're experiencing and to be able to respond to that uh, in a way that is taking it in context to the discussions that are currently under underway. Great. Thanks, Clinton. Michelle? Yeah, I think just like what I said before about if you're going to be a good ally, like don't come with a whole bunch of questions if you haven't done any of your own research, you know, and people that are in that kind of mental health and, you know, GP kind of space, you know, you should be engaging in cultural training. It shouldn't be a one-time, you know, tick-off box for your work to still continue working. It should be an ongoing iterative process and, you know, do your own learning. It doesn't have to be prescribed to you. Um, you know, daily, like have a see of what's going on in the news, seeing what's affecting different people as well. Because I know in a lot of the discussions around like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Torres Strait Islander people get cast aside a lot. And, you know, there's lots of things that are affecting us, like climate change, for instance, especially the rising sea levels in the Torres Strait. And it's just really important because I think one of the things that I worry about with the voices, like when it comes to actually having it if that's you know what happens it's like who's going to be represented here are we going to have young people are we going to have elders are we going to have trans people lgbtqia plus people like who are going to be the people that are part of this and that we're having that diversity that we have in our community and that's you know amazing and should be celebrated that should also be reflected in that voice if that comes to be and I think yeah as practitioners what Clinton said about you know kind of keeping your personal opinions to yourself like you're there to do your job so make sure you treat Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people just as you would everybody else with respect. Great thanks Michelle well said. Shannon. Uh, I, I guess just going back to my you know my point about binary thinking um, you know as a practicing uh, health as a practicing doctor it's really not up to me um, what people think. It's up to me to understand why do people do what they do and what shapes their reality um, and how do I work with them in terms of their strengths, in terms of that whole social and emotional well-being point of view to create a health outcome that actually suits them, their family, and, and where they want to be and, and, and how they get that out of life. Now, I don't have the answers for that. But the patient that's sitting in front of you does. And it's my responsibility as a tool for that patient to assist them on that journey. And that's it. I'm just a tool. That's all I am. I've got to come with a limited sphere of knowledge, but that's that's it, you know. Um, and to be to be culturally safe is is not determined by the doctor. It's actually determined by the patient. I can't tell you whether you're safe. It's a it's a subjective experience. So if you don't know if your patients are experiencing a safe practice, then you can't say you're actually practicing a culturally safe um, way of providing healthcare. Um, you know, 
me being an Aboriginal doctor doesn't make me culturally safe. That's all, that is always determined by the patients in the community. And, and I think um, that's what we need to build into practice. Um, so that, that, so, that's so my that two cents. And is that about having some kind of feedback mechanism as practitioners for checking in about safety? What, what does that look like, would you say? Well, in, in my experience, because I work in an Aboriginal medical centre, um, I would be the first person to know if I screw up um, and I'm at the bottom of the hierarchy, you know, and the whole model of healthcare is flipped. And I love being there, you know, because I learn. I learn so much from my own community and, you know, I reflect on my own practices all the time. Um, and, you know, the community helped me with that, you know. Being Aboriginal, they give me a lot of lead way, but, you know, um, but it, 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 you know, the, the people that are on the podcast or listening, they would have a lot of experience out there that they could actually, you know, work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I couldn't do and leverage off their own experiences. So we have to understand our own strengths and how we can, you know, walk with, work with uh, the communities in which we're embedded in. Okay. So, um yeah, anything that you've noticed um, in terms of social and emotional well-being effects that may present in people who may be working with practitioners and things that we should look out for and be extra mindful of. I'm thinking to your point, Clinton, before about how things can be misinterpreted if it's looked at from a lens of kind of mental health or, you know, um, it's not broad enough. Yeah, definitely. You know, when we take that social emotional well-being perspective and when you're seeing a person as a whole, you, you're really looking at the way that everything has an interplay on the rest of the self. Um, you know, so something as simple as increased stress, for instance, we know that that increased stress or psychological distress can very quickly and easily lead to further physical um, ailments with the person. And those physical ailments may then be impacting on their ability to engage in cultural practices that help them feel strong and deadly or to engage with family. And so maybe they're feeling more disconnected to family or to, to even a sporting club or to other things that give them a strong sense of self and positive identity. So, that again is why we need to be looking at this from a broader perspective than just taking it on the presentation or the diagnosis as usual um, when we're working with First Nations peoples, particularly when there's increased stressors out there, such as these discussions that are going on at the moment. Great. Thanks, Clinton. Michelle? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I regularly engage with my GP because I have chronic illness, endometriosis and fibromyalgia. And um, I think also you've got to think from those patriarchal um, kind of ways of lots of doctors being male, pale and stale and not really understanding women's, women's experiences or those who are assigned female at birth, what, what we kind of go through. And um, I see a psychologist on a regular basis and kind of, you know, if I'm presenting in an anxious way, that can be because of something that I'm going through individually, but I can also go from how I'm feeling from, you know, my friends and family in the community what they're feeling can impact my feelings as well, thinking on a, of that holistic perspective. But also I can be, you know, hurt like physically with a sick belly or, you know, worried in my head and anxious to do with the land and, you know, the constant, you know, desecration of our land from mining companies and things like that. And it's just, yeah, having practitioners understand all those kind of different determinants that can be influencing you, like Lyndon said, both physically and mentally. So. Great. Thanks, Michelle. Shannon. Yeah, my, my biggest challenge is fighting the, the system. 
Um, you know, if you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person and you present to an emergency department anywhere in Australia, you're less likely to get a diagnostic procedure or an investigation of choice despite having a greater burden of disease. And the further remote you go, the harder this is. So my, my challenges have got really nothing to do with the patient. <laughs> it's navigating the systems and the barriers and, and all of those things that um, don't allow people to get the best access to healthcare in a culturally appropriate way and seeing the right health professional at the right time and, you know, and, and having people that the community can go to because people present late because there's no one there, you know. I've been the only doctor in in the AMS that I'm at for the last three weeks. Um, you know, the, 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 the workforce issues and, and, the, and the systems um yeah, and not only affecting on um Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, but but affecting a lot of people. But those people that are more marginalized in our community, it'll affect them um significantly. And you know, yeah, it's 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 not nice knowing people, you know, knowing that people should be living and they've passed away. Yeah, so absolutely. it's challenging. Absolutely, absolutely. So what can health practitioners be doing to get more in touch with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues in their local areas in general? Any ideas that any of you have there? Get engaged with the local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. You know, if you, if you want to be accepted, if you want to learn more, the best way to do that is to be seen and to be part of Um you know, people ask us that all the time. What is it that I can do to show my support? And I'm like, well, show up on more than NAIDOC day would be a good start, you know. Um, show show your support every day. <laughs> um, treat our events and our, and our causes as you would any other um, in terms of your interest, your vested interest and, and your enthusiasm. Great. Michelle? I totally agree. It's about being present every single day and not just, you know, for sorry day or a particular event, but really understanding that, you know, these kind of social and emotional determinants of our well-being we experience on a daily basis. And it's really important that you are part of the community. You know, there's local land councils that you can engage with. You've got um, your farm in Victoria, so like the Victorian Aboriginal Community controlled health services you've got your local gathering places that you can come to you can meet people you know uh if you really want to work and help with aboriginal and torres strait islander people it's almost like you want to advertise yourself as a friendly ally that means you know being part of our community and also stepping back when it's not your time to speak and letting those first nations voices shine through great thanks michelle shannon i guess it's um you know I, I, I tried to get people to to reflect on their own sense of self and where they're at, you know, be prepared to be uncomfortable, be prepared to be challenged. And if you're, if you're a non-Indigenous person and you're working in the Indigenous space, be prepared to do yourself out of the job. You know, you know, you have to give up power. Um, you have to step aside and this is what self-determination looks like. And if you're not prepared to do that, you need to ask yourself why. You know, and if you're not prepared to change your own practice, and if you're not prepared to have some critical reflection, you know, I don't know, do something else. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. And I quickly say something too. Is yeah, like of course. Lots of, people, lots of people go into these kind of like health professions and like 
helping professions because they care about people and they want to help people. But if you get to a point where you're so jaded <laughs> that it is impacting the way that you care for and service for people, maybe think about, you know, retiring or looking into a different profession because, you know, as, as like a consumer of health services, I've had so many instances of just doctors who don't care, you know, practitioners that aren't listening. And it's like, well, if you aren't here to help me, please, you know, send me to somebody that does care. And especially for those that deal with chronic illness, and I know it's just not spoken a lot because a lot of illnesses like the two I have are invisible and people can't see them. It's, it takes a long time to be diagnosed, like Shannon said, like 20, 15 years to get diagnosed. Wow. For different people. It could Gosh. have been diagnosed earlier and treated earlier. So, and, yeah. And, and just, just so I'm not coming, you know, just to be completely transparent with my own sense of self, um, this has happened to me where I was sitting at a conference um, and I hadn't been home for a long period of time. And I remember that the words that were coming out of my mouth and were very white. Mm. And I just went, oh, my God, you know, I've got so far away from my own principles that I had to go home. I went home, re-educated myself, um, re-immersed myself. So regardless of who you are, you know, being cognizant of what you're thinking, doing, you know, you're, you're knowing, being and doing, which we talk about, um, that, that has to be congruent, you know, and, and continually reflecting on that um, requires self-attention. Um, and I've had to do it myself. So um, we're not, yeah, we're not all infallible of this. And especially for Indigenous practitioners to, you know, take that time away to have that cultural leave, you know, connect back to country when you're feeling a little bit, you know, um, not so well. And it's really about um, also just having these opportunities that created in uh, society to actually build up more Indigenous psychologists, more Indigenous GPs, because we need it. Like, it's so important. And if, you know, these kind of... Uh, constructions like the government if they're not actually funding in that they need to put their voice <laughs> into actions like it actually needs to be something that we see on the ground level because you can talk as much as you want but if there's no action you know that's why we're wary of the voice yeah of course of course yeah yeah thank you um okay so what about resources that are available for Indigenous people's social and emotional well-being that it would be good for practitioners um, and listeners to be aware of? Anything that comes to mind? We'll have a look at a few that um, you've shared with me, but anything that particularly comes to mind? One Three Yarn is a good one. So it's basically like Lifeline but by Mob and for Mob. So you can call up, you can yarn for as long as you like. And, you know, about all sorts of issues that, you know, are kind of getting you down. You can also talk about positive things too because we are, you know, well-rounded people and we go through different experiences. But just to have something that's, you know, specifically for us but with mob, like, on the other side of the phone, I love it. Yeah, brilliant. Really good. Yeah. Um, Shannon and Clinton, anything that? I think I think there's a real space for peer-led work in this space, um, be that lived experience or be it lived experience informed peer workers as such. You know, we know there's such a critical shortage of particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, clinicians, professionals available. And the more remote you get, that the, the more uh, decline there is in, in that service provision, unfortunately. But we have a real opportunity to harness what already exists within communities 
and that's people who have a complete understanding of their community context. They have a complete understanding of the family dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, of their, con- of their communities. And they also have really good understandings of social emotional well-being and what is impacting on social emotional well-being within their communities. So I think we have an opportunity to harness that in terms of a peer workforce that can, can be more readily available to assist people, particularly in, in, in times of need. Great. Thank you. Shannon? I guess, um, you know, just going back to the point of um, being a, a culturally safe health practitioner, it's our own responsibility um, to ensure that we're providing, you know, culturally safe um, care. You know, I, we hear this new new thing about trauma-informed care, you know. Well, what is care without understanding people's trauma? It's just not good care, you know. I mean, it, we need to go back to, um, you know, understanding our own sense of self, engaging in cultural safety courses, um, what that means, how that translates into practice. Um, so a lot of that is giving, and when you go through that process, you'll gain tools about how to better engage in your own community um, because every community is going to be different. You know, if you're in, if you lived in one community and you know one community, you know one community. That's it, you know. <laughs> Um, so having the, having the principles and the tools to apply to wherever the spaces is you, you know, that you work, um, is, is something that you can hold for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks. So a final word from each of you, Clinton, what kinds of research are needed in this area, um, of practitioners working with First Nations people, what kinds of things would you like to see? Yeah, in the research space, I think we really need to further unpack the the different domains of social emotional well-being in terms of being able to then get to a point of where we can better understand differences uh, within those experiences and and at some stage therefore be able to better measure as such what's going on for people which will allow us then to better track what's going on from a more from a more holistic perspective but some of those concepts are quite tricky to try and to measure you know how do you measure somebody's connection to spirituality it's it's an individual um, experience and you know some one person might say that they're really connected but somebody might look at them and go you seem disconnected to me so um, it is a difficult space for us to navigate I think what we can do in the research space is stop using invalid tools to be then furthering the deficit discourse about what's going on about First Nations peoples. So at the moment, we're using a lot of tools that have never been validated for working with First Nations populations. And out of the, most of them are deficit focused. And what it does is it furthers and strengthens the deficit discourse and the deficit discourse almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think the first thing we need to do is we need to stop our uh, addition to that burden. Shannon, what are your top tips for practitioners who are working with Indigenous peoples around the voice to Parliament and all matters that affect them? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I, I guess it, I'm just a big believer in working with people instead of on people um, and just understanding that the patient in the room or whether you call them a patient or whether you, well, whatever you call them, um, is, is the professional and is the expert in their own experience. Um, and if you, if you practice from that point of view, um, then you know you're more likely to get better health outcomes from your patients. 
And you as a health practitioner are more likely to learn how to be a better person and a better health practitioner as well. So it's reciprocal. It works both ways. Uh, in terms of the voice to parliament, um, um, I think, again, it's about non having a, a non-binary view and understanding people's experience and their reality. Some people might be voting yes because they feel really empowered about this and understand that we've lacked traction over a long period of time. And if we get this in there, we can't go backwards and that we always have a seat at the table. Um, you know, some other people might be having the experience where, you know, they feel like we're going down this road again. And I don't understand how it translates into, you know, outcomes for me tomorrow, you know, and, and, and probably won't. But the point is, it's, it's, um, it's exactly what Clinton said. It is actually not about us at the end of the day. It's about the people that is sitting across the room from us or the community or the focus group or, or whatever reality that you work with. Um, it, 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 it is about, it's about the people and what they want to do and what they decide. Yeah, I totally agree um, yeah, with both of those. And um, yeah, I guess what both of you have touched on about, you know, kind of moving away almost from those Western ways of looking at things and really engaging of Indigenous knowledge is there's so much amazing knowledge, like Clinton said, for, for you know, diagnosing and looking at um, mental health disorders with Indigenous peoples. It's like looking at the work of Dr. Tracy Westerman, like she does some amazing work and she doesn't get, you know, that kind of recognition that she deserves. It's going, again, I guess, back to that kind of patriarchal society where, like, a lot of the time, like, male voices are, are kind of prioritised over female voices. And, you know, there's Chelsea Wotego, Dr. Eileen Morton-Robinson. There's so many amazing people that we should be listening to and, I guess, sharing their work more. And if practitioners are, you know, kind of learning even before they're practitioners, like, what's in their curriculum that they're learning? And it's just a one-day, like, you know, this is Indigenous perspectives on, you know, mental health, physical health, or is it, like I said, an iterative process that's ingrained mm. in your learning as you go before you even become a practitioner? I think the, the other thing that I probably, probably haven't sort of highlighted is, is, is if we, you know, if, if there's a no vote to this, what are the unintended consequences? And what does that actually mean in terms of social and emotional wellbeing? And what have people have said no to? That's what I would like to know. Um, are they saying no to the constitutional, you know, changes or, I don't know, are they saying no to maintain power and status quo? Um, so uh, I don't know what the fallout is going to be after this, um, but that would be another interesting podcast, which I'd rather be a, um, a listener to rather than the panellist. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I'd, I'd just I'd just further on that to to close for myself as well in terms of, I've seen there was a question in the chat around you know what are the social emotional implications of a yes vote um, well it's furthering what Shannon says we don't know <laughs> there, we don't know because this will actually be legislated so it all depends on what the legislation that follows the vote will be the the mechanism itself isn't going to make a difference one way or another to people on the ground and that's a, a really important point here. What's going to make a difference is the policy, the legislation, the policy and the projects, the, the et cetera, that flow down from that, the interventions that flow down from that to communities. And we just don't have that level of information at the moment. And we won't have that till post the, till post the vote, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think it'll stop there, really. Like, it's not like the vote like the vote will go through and then, you know, that's it. Like we're going to have ramifications, whether it's yes or no. And just to point out for some of the questions in the Q&A, like 
even I can see the word ATSI there and I know that's kind of an offensive terminology to use like we're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people we deserve to be spelled out fully and not you know combined to an acronym and it's just yeah about that constant knowledge gaining obviously I'm not trying to be rude to the people that have said that but it's about like you're going to be learning things every day and it's what you learn throughout this vote like I said it's going to be a whole year that's really going to be impacting you know us more than in a negative way positive, negative, everything. And yeah, for those health practitioners that work with us to really understand that this doesn't end once the vote ends, it's ongoing for us as for life. And I guess, you know, if we go back to the 1967 referendum and asked a different question, um, you know, because the question back then was making laws and um, and, and applying laws uh, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from the government working on people. Um, now we're looking at a different question about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander making their own policies and laws that affect them with the government, and it's all about the with. Um, so, you know, perhaps if we asked a different question back then, we probably, you know, might not even be having this debate now. Can I quickly add one more thing? I know I keep doing that, but... We're talking a lot about like health practitioners and and their kind of you know role in this, but just for mob like in general, like it can be very hard listening to all of this. So just make sure like you can distance yourself away from a lot of the stories that are going on. Try not to read the comments, which is where I get in a lot of trouble. Um, and just yeah, know that there's more people that are supportive of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, regardless. And um, it's sometimes a lot like the minority, the racist people that tend to have a say a lot. So just know that, you know, you're loved and you're cared for and everybody's valid. And, you know, if you need help, you reach out for it. We're all here, you know, to support one another. And, you know, that's our community. We love each other. We want to support one another. Yeah. And it's not your responsibility to reform races. No, not at, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So thank you, everybody, so much. Um, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you being with us and your, sharing your um, thoughts and expertise. Um, in terms of e-mental health tools, 13 Yarn, uh, Michelle mentioned before, WellMob is a social, emotional and cultural wellbeing online resources for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, Black Rainbow is also a terrific resource. It's a national volunteer, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, LGBTQIA plus SB. Uh, sister, brother, sis, sister, boy, and brother, girl, social enterprise to pursue positive health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBTQIA plus SB community. Um, also, this Aboriginal Health Medical Research Council of New South Wales has some great social and emotional well-being resources, as well as iBobly. This is um, the first well-being self-help app for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians um, from ages fifteen up um, from Black Dog Institute. So they're worth having a look at. I invite health practitioners to have a look at 10, the essential network for health professionals, particularly at the burnout module, um, which I think is particularly relevant for many people after um, yeah, the, the years that have just been. And please do connect with Black Dog Institute. Um, you can visit our website um, and have a look at the health professional training, um, which can be by Zoom or in person. And you can also follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, so for any further questions, please contact us at 
um, Education at Black Dog. And thank you, everyone, for coming today. And heartfelt thanks to our panellists today, Michelle, Clinton and Shannon. We really appreciate your expertise, your time. Um, please look after yourselves after this podcast. Um, I know it's a yeah, difficult topic to discuss. And also for the listeners today, please look after yourselves, take good care. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au. 